At least three people are dead as record rainfall causes mudslides and power outages in Southern California. It's Tuesday, February 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new bill in the Senate could mark the most significant change to American immigration law in decades. This bipartisan agreement is not perfect, but given all the dangers facing America, it is the comprehensive package our country needs right now. Also this hour. We've just been so overexposed to recommendations and manipulated so much that we've realized they're not actually delivering what we want. A new social media site caters to people who are fed up with algorithms that guide our digital choices. Plus, the founder of Gaza's first rock band talks about his hopes for the future. Even if you destroy everything within, we have strong faith, we have strong passion, we have strong passion to live. Mostly cloudy in the 30s today, it's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Additional wartime funding for Ukraine is in question. It's included in the bipartisan border policy bill that's facing major roadblocks in Congress, as NPR's Giles Snyder reports. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is warning that Americans will feel the consequences if Ukraine is defeated. He says the U.S. must answer the call. The $118 billion package includes more than $60 billion for Ukraine. But Senate Republicans are now balking, and House Speaker Mike Johnson says he will instead move a standalone bill to provide funding for Israel's fight against Hamas. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The Senate plans to hold a procedural vote in the full chamber tomorrow. Israel's defense minister says the military is preparing to launch a ground operation on Rafah, the town at the southern end of Gaza. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Rafah is packed with Palestinian civilians who fled other parts of Gaza. The defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said, quote, Every terrorist hiding in Rafah needs to know that his end will be either surrender or death. There isn't a third option. However, any Israeli military operation in Rafah will be extremely complicated. As Israeli troops have advanced north to south in Gaza, civilians have been squeezed into the area in and around Rafah, on the border with Egypt. Well over one million Palestinians are in the Rafah area, accounting for at least half of Gaza's population. Gallant did not say when Israel might take action in Rafah, the last town in Gaza under Hamas control. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. At least three people have been killed by the major storm hitting California, all from falling trees as winds lash the northern part of the state. As NPR's Nathan Rott reports, heavy rain continues to cause flooding and mudslides in the south. Here in Southern California, the main concern has been from record-breaking rains. More than 10 inches fell in parts of the Santa Monica Mountains. Kristen Lund, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Southern California, says the storm is weakening. But there is still like a threat of like mudslides, roads flooding because they're already flooded. So we're not in the clear, you could say. Rain showers, strong winds and thunderstorms are expected to continue across Southern California into Wednesday. City and state officials are urging people to stay cautious and limit travel, especially on wet roadways. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Ventura, California. In world financial markets, Asian markets were mixed by the close. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, down just over a half percent. The Hang Seng and Hong Kong up 4 percent. European markets are trading in mixed territory this morning. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower. 
All three major indices are trading down about one-tenth of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The state steamship authority lacks appropriate cybersecurity measures. That's according to an audit of the agency by the state auditor's office. The authority manages ferries between the Cape and Islands. The authority will implement a new cybersecurity training program. The audit also determined the Steamship Authority did not misuse COVID-era relief aid. Officials in Holyoke say they're frustrated with a response from state education officials on the process of ending state receivership of schools. The city's public schools have been under state control since 2015. That's when the district was cited as chronically underperforming. Adam Frenier reports on the latest developments. In September, the Holyoke School Committee petitioned the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, or DESE, saying enough progress had been made to take back local control. In a letter from DESE Commissioner Jeff Riley to Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia, Riley said more conversations needed to take place and deferred action on the request. Aaron Brunel is vice chair of the school board. I don't think any of us expected him to say, oh, sure, yes, you can have your schools back tomorrow. But we were all hoping for and urging for a willful transition phase. The school committee is scheduled to meet next week to discuss what it will do next. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Franier. Federal highway officials say it could take years to replace the bridge connecting Providence to Massachusetts's south coast. Rhode Island Transit officials closed the Washington Bridge last month after discovering critical flaws. Officials initially estimated repairs could be completed within months. They're now waiting on an assessment to determine if a part of the bridge needs to be demolished. Tax filing season is now underway, and thousands of people in Boston and the Mystic Valley could get free help with their return. It's part of a federal program that's locally run by Action for Boston Community Development. Organization President and CEO Sharon Scott Chandler says the help is available to people who earned $64,000 or less last year. Many people get money back through this, you know, even if it's an extra $300 or an extra $3,000, folks can really get substantial money back after working so hard every year. Scott Chandler says her group helped 3,000 people last year. They hope to increase that number to 5,000 this year. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Moonbox Productions, presenting the Manic Monologues, incredible stories told by brave individuals that challenge and inform your ideas about what it means to be touched by a mental health condition. They are moving and they are not ashamed. February 16th through the 25th at the Arrow Street Arts Performance Venue. Tickets at arrowstreetarts.org. Northeastern University will face off against Boston University in this year's Men's Beanpot Championship. Northeastern defeated Harvard in overtime yesterday. That gives the team a chance to defend its title in this year's championship game. They'll face off against Boston University. The team defeated Boston College yesterday 4-3. The Bruins are at home tonight. They face off against the Calgary Flames. That game gets underway at 7. Mostly cloudy and breezy today with temperatures reaching the mid to upper 30s. Tonight, the clouds stick around and it dips below freezing with a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. 
and the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Senate is supposed to vote this week on a massive new border security and foreign aid package. It is budgeted at more than $118 billion. If passed, the measure would result in the most significant change to American asylum law or immigration law in decades. The bill includes funding to beef up the infrastructure for handling asylum claims and for barriers. And it also includes humanitarian aid for Ukraine, Israel, and the Palestinian territories. But it's passage is far from assured. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut was the Democrats' lead negotiator on the deal, and he is with us now to tell us more about the bill and where things stand. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. So just to remind people, support for Ukraine, Israel, and humanitarian assistance in Gaza has been stalled for months because Republicans have been saying the crisis at the border is a higher priority for them, and they want tougher measures to secure the border. As briefly as you can, how would this bill address what is happening on the southern border? Well, Americans want us to come together and fix the southern border. They see 10,000 people crossing many days. They know that the country can't handle that kind of influx on a daily basis. They see migrants piling up on the streets and in homeless shelters. Um, They know that is a crisis that governors and mayors need help with. This bill does that. This bill would allow the president to shut down parts of the border when too many people are crossing on a daily basis. It makes a fundamental reform to the asylum process. Right now, it takes often 10 years to process an asylum claim. That's way too long, especially when many of those people have their asylum claims rejected in the end. That time frame would be shortened under this bill to six months. And then the bill increases legal immigration pathways. You can't fix the border if you don't provide more people other ways to get to the United States. So over the next five years, it would open up about 250,000 new visas, both family visas and work visas, to come to the United States. If passed, as you referenced, it would be the most significant bipartisan border reform in 40 years, and it is what the American people want. They don't want this issue to be used as a permanent political cudgel. They want us to solve the problem. Those would be some of the changes in the bill that would allow the president to get the border under control. So I think a lot of people know that former President Donald Trump is pushing Republicans to oppose it. Some Senate Republicans have come out against it. But let's talk about members of your own party. Like New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez called it unacceptable. He said if this bill had come forward under Trump, Democrats would be outraged. What do you say to members of your own party so who are saying, look, this is the opposite of what President Biden says he stood for when he ran for office? I know Washington is kind of unfamiliar with an old-fashioned compromise um, that involves some Democrats voting no and some Republicans voting no, but that's what we've done here. We are um, taking an issue that has long divided America and finding middle ground. But the truth of the matter is, most all Democrats are going to vote for this bill. There will be a handful of Democrats that will vote no, and I accept that. Um, the problem is, right now, uh, it looks as if most Republicans are going to vote against it as well. And the only way we can get this passed in the Senate is if you have a majority of Democrats and a majority of Republicans supporting it. And right now, most Republicans are prepared to listen to Donald Trump, who says uh, he wants chaos to continue at the border because that will help him politically. I don't think Republicans are looking at this bill on the merits. I think they are simply looking at it 
uh, as something that would be politically unhelpful to their presidential candidate if it passes. Democrats who are voting for it or against it, I think, are legitimately reviewing the bill on the merits. So, as you, well, I think so many people may know this, that House Speaker Mike Johnson says that it's he's already declared it sort of dead on arrival. So what options do you have except to basically run on it yourselves? Basically, you you as Democrats make it a voting issue and say that we're the party that wants to govern and the other party doesn't. Do you have any other options, really? Well, I mean, let's go back to last fall. We were trying to pass Ukraine aid, and Republicans told us that they were not going to support Ukraine aid unless we passed bipartisan border reform. We were all there. We all have the receipts. And we did exactly what Republicans told us to do. We got a bipartisan border reform bill, a historic one. And now those same Republicans are saying that they are going to oppose the bill that they asked for because Donald Trump wants chaos at the border. I think that is a terrible outcome for the country. I think it makes us weaker. I think it makes our border less secure. But it's also a terrible political decision by Republicans because this country will see it for what it is, a decision to keep the country unsafe just because Donald Trump benefits from chaos. And I do think that story is going to be a big part of this election if Republicans choose that path. There's still an opportunity. They can still work with us and get this bill passed through the Senate. They've got to make that decision in the next 24 to 48 hours. Okay, I'm going to ask my colleagues if we can keep going, and I think we can just for a couple more minutes, because I don't want to talk about the foreign aid aspect of this bill. There are no restrictions on the $14.1 billion in security assistance to Israel, but there is a ban on distributing aid to the United Nations main relief agency in Gaza. How would the U.S. deliver aid to Palestinians in need? I mean, I think the need is clear to people who are paying attention. Well, there is $10 billion in aid to Gaza in this bill. We did not cut the amount that the president requested. Listen, clearly UNRWA has to get its house in order. And so under this bill, we are not sending money to that particular agency. But there are many other groups like the Red Crescent that are operating effectively inside Gaza. um, And we will get money to people who need it. But keeping money from UNRWA was a condition of Republicans to support the humanitarian funding in this bill. And as I said, it was a compromise, um, a messy compromise, a difficult compromise, but $10 billion, exactly what the president asked for, for humanitarian relief in Gaza, remains in this bill. That's really important. And on Ukraine, you've repeatedly made the case that that this is a priori- this should be a priority for the United States to assist Ukraine in resisting the Russian invasion. Now, you've set aside $60.1 billion in military assistance for Ukraine. It seems that Americans are growing weary of this war, and you see that there's kind of growing opposition, particularly on the Republican side. How do you make the case that this remains critical? Well, ultimately, um, we are making a decision about the post-World War II order in which big nations don't get to expand their borders by invading smaller nations. The United States has greatly benefited um, from that order, that kind of global stability. But it is also true that history repeats itself. And if Putin wins in Ukraine, there is a real potential that he moves beyond Ukraine into a NATO country. And then it's U.S. men and women that are in Europe fighting and dying to nuclear powers at war against each other. This is just a very important preventative step to stop the United States from getting dragged into an absolutely disastrous war, a, a, pretty, a pretty cheap investment in our security and global security. And I think most Americans agree with that. That is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you. Okay, this may sound confusing, but former President Donald Trump will not be on the ballot in today's primary in Nevada. But he's assured to sweep the state's 26 delegates. That's because there are actually two nominating contests in Nevada, today's primary, which Nikki Haley is on the ballot for, and Thursday's caucus, where Trump is the only major candidate participating. NPR's Franco Ordonez is in Las Vegas, where local voters are also trying to make sense of it all. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Michelle. Okay, simple question. Why are there two contests? Yeah, it is a simple question, but not really a simple answer. It's kind of part of a conflict between the state Republican Party, which is run by Trump allies, and a state law that mandates the primary must be held. Nevada actually has long held caucuses, but the state legislature passed a law in 2021 switching to a more straightforward primary vote. But the nominating contests are run by political parties and not the state. And the Nevada Republican Party decided to stick with a caucus, which awards the 26 delegates. So voters will be heading to the polls today, and Nikki Haley is almost guaranteed to win, but it's largely a symbolic victory. You've been talking to voters. What do they make of all this? Are they able to make sense of this? I mean, it's caused a lot of problems. I was out talking to voters yesterday. I mean, there were some Republicans who still didn't know whether they should be voting in the primary or the caucus. You know, I talked with Kathy Escandani just south of the Strip. She kind of summed up the feelings of a lot of voters here. I was shocked. I looked at my sample ballot and told my husband, um, Donald Trump isn't on the ballot. Like, what is that? Nikki Haley's there, a couple other names I didn't know, but no Trump? And even more confusing, registered Republicans can vote in both the primary and the caucus. There's no law prohibiting them from doing so. So all of this has just led to accusations of conspiracy and election fraud. Chuck Muth, a local Republican political consultant, told me it just makes the state look bad. It's a total disaster from a public relations standpoint, because even active Republicans who are very attuned to what's going on are completely confused by why this is being done the way it's being done. Now, Michelle, on the flip side, there are local, other local pundits that say that, or at least told me, that it's raised attention about the contest and may have actually boosted Republican registrations. Okay, so what do we think this means for the race? It's all just kind of weird. I mean, you're basically going to have two winners this week in Nevada. You know, there's also a lot of talk in political circles that more people could show up at the primaries and Haley could get more votes than Trump does in the caucuses. That would certainly be embarrassing for Trump. So I'll be watching for that. But again, if it does, it won't change the fact that Trump gets all the delegates. Okay, reminder, the Republicans aren't the only ones voting this week, though, right? The Democrats are too, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, while Republicans are also trying to figure all their stuff out, Democrats are also voting today. And it's also an election with a clear winner in President Biden. So while the outcome for the primary may be set, Nevada is just such an important state in the general elections. It's actually the first of the big six swing states to vote in a primary, making it extra important. The campaigns are out looking to test messaging and get any information they can as they prepare for November. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez in Las Vegas. Franco, thank you. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news that the U.S. House plans to vote today on impeachment charges against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Also, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Cairo for a meeting about a possible ceasefire in Gaza that would include a release of hostages held by Hamas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we go to Denver, Colorado, where the city is scaling back aid to migrants seeking shelter. That's leading to many families being evicted from hotel rooms where they were being temporarily housed. It's 720. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Mostly cloudy today. We'll have a high in the upper 30s. Tonight, overcast with lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Coming to City Space on Friday, February 16th, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast. It'll feature true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere, at uma.com slash NPR. From St. Martin's Press, publishers of The Women, a novel by Kristen Hanna, author of The Nightingale, a portrait of coming of age and a tale of a nation divided. The Women is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The historian Alan Gelzo begins a new book by saying he has lived in a time of shadows. My long life, he writes, has been a hurdle race of public agonies. What once seemed like the end of history, the triumph of democracy, now feels like something else. It's because democracy itself has become a source of anxiety that there is so much fear that it's almost palpable in the atmosphere that somehow democracy is not performing up to specs and that maybe we need to resort to something else. Gelzo says his own profession, academia, is besieged and invaded by political soap opera. The Princeton University historian says he tries to avoid politics himself. He never wants his students to know his opinions. And in our interview, he never even hinted at his preferences in, say, the Israel-Hamas war 
or the 2024 presidential election. He did argue that democracy is still vital today, that it can still work. And his book, Our Ancient Faith, reflects on the system we have, as seen by Abraham Lincoln, the president during the Civil War. The great thing about democracies is they have such resilience. Totalitarian systems look so strong. They look so powerful. They've got these people in uniforms and medals and they're strutting armies on parade and missiles on display. They look powerful. But totalitarians are really fragile. If, if they can't succeed at the very first moment of what they attempt to do, they break up and collapse. Whereas democracies, democracies reel from mistakes they have made, from challenges they haven't anticipated. They reel from them and they, they pick themselves back up. And then they go forward and they solve these problems. And we sometimes don't give ourselves enough of a chance. We don't we don't practice enough resilience. We don't practice enough patience. And if there's anybody who can talk to us about the importance and the significance of patience and resilience in democratic life, I think it's Abraham Lincoln. You raise a fascinating point about the way that Lincoln viewed himself and democracy and the presidency in that while we see him as our greatest president and the guy in the Lincoln Memorial and just an overwhelming figure, he described himself, even while president, as only one citizen, a person who was elected for a brief period of time and argued he was not that important compared to the system as a whole. He once spoke of himself as a piece of driftwood that had drifted into the middle of this great sensational moment. Soon after his election in 1860, Lincoln assured an audience that even if his presidency were foolish or wicked, democracy meant he would only serve for a while and there was only so much damage he could do, so long as other citizens insisted on the Constitution. The United States of America is such an enormous country. I mean, 340, 350 million people. There is so much, there is so much strength in the fiber and sinew of the American democracy that no, no matter how foolish, no matter how sometimes even wicked, the designs of leaders can be, there is an instinct deep in the marrow of American bones that in fact embraces this idea of democracy, that embraces malice toward none and charity for all. Sometimes it's a matter simply of talking to each other. I had an incident just in the last several days where one other academic made some nasty comments about something I'd written, probably probably justifiable too. And I immediately dashed out a note of my own to send to the editor of the publication. And then I looked at it and said, it would be a good idea if I took my own advice. So I sent what I'd written to the, this particular person. And he wrote a wonderful response. We started to understand each other. And I thought, now we're doing something that begins to look like malice toward none. We're doing something that looks like democracy. Because hmm. democracy, so much of it is about learning how we can communicate and trust each other. I have to confess I was drawn into this book immediately by the title, Our Ancient Faith. Yes. Because it reminded me of a speech by Lincoln in 1854 that is often on my mind. October 16th. Go, go, yeah. tell the story. Well, the speech he gives at Peoria, Illinois in October of 1854 is one of the 
biggest steps he takes back onto the political stage. And there he lays out a complete political philosophy of hostility to slavery and its contradiction of democracy, which is what he is describing when he uses that phrase, our ancient faith. Our ancient faith is wedded to the Declaration of Independence. Our ancient faith is wedded to the idea of the consent of the governed, which he called in that same speech, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. That means it's utterly incompatible with slavery. Is he saying that his religion almost is the republic, is self-government? Yes, and I don't think it's a mistake, because Lincoln grew up in a very religious household. Personally speaking, he undergoes a kind of adolescent rebellion against that. He never joins a church. And people said that as a 20-something, he was something of an infidel, an unbeliever. But he knew what religion was. He knew what it meant to say that something was your faith. And particularly, our ancient faith. He wants Americans to understand that the Declaration of Independence and its principles should be as dear to Americans as the tenets of Christianity are to Christians, of Judaism to Jews, and so on down the line. The tenacity with which you hold a faith is the tenacity with which Americans should hold on to the ideas of the Declaration the ideas of a republic, the ideas of consent. That is an ancient faith, and it's ours. Alan C. Gelzo is the author of Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experiment. Thanks so much. Steve, this has been so much fun. Put a nickel in my meter. I'll talk all day about Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Just a nickel. Great. Just a nickel. That's all it'll take. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. A defamation trial wrapping up this week in Washington, D.C., pits one of the world's leading climate scientists against a right-wing author. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republicans in Congress are voicing opposition to a bipartisan immigration and border security bill unveiled by Senate negotiators. It's unclear if there's enough support in the Senate for the measure to pass a procedural vote scheduled for tomorrow. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is not giving up. I am hopeful that enough senators understand that this bill is too important, too important to let politics get in the way. The $118 billion bill includes tens of billions of dollars in additional USA to Ukraine, along with money for Israel. Republicans in the House are pushing a standalone bill for Israel. The U.N. is appointing an independent panel to investigate allegations that members of the U.N.'s aid agency for Palestinians in Gaza took part in Hamas's deadly October 7th assault in southern Israel. Linda Fasulo reports. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the purpose of the investigation is to determine if UNRWA is doing everything within its power to ensure neutrality and to respond to allegations of serious breaches when they occur. Former French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna will head the panel, which will include three European research organizations, 
An interim report is due in late March, a final report in late April. That's Linda Fasulo reporting. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts collected less money in taxes than it predicted it would last month. The state was $263 million behind where it predicted it would be. The low collection comes just weeks after Governor Healy cut spending because of low revenue collections. Healy says she has no plans to raise taxes or fees to fund the state budget. A new study from Brigham and Women's Hospital sheds light on the connection between stable housing and health. The study's authors analyzed data from a housing intervention program run by the hospital since 2018. Staff connected patients living in unstable housing with advocates who work to get them into more secure situations. The study's lead author is Dr. Mary Catherine Arbor. She says patients who worked with the advocates reported fewer outpatient doctor visits per year. This reduction was driven by a reduction in social work, behavioral health, psychiatry, and urgent care visits. And I think that that really speaks to how stressful it is to be in the process of eviction, to have unstable or unsafe housing. Arbor says the patients also reported feeling a closer connection to their primary care teams. Vermont will be in the path of a total solar eclipse this April. That has visitors quickly snatching up places to stay to witness the historic event. Elodi Reed reports places are hard to find and they're expensive. According to data scraped from Airbnb, Booking.com, and Verbo, and collected by the company Price Labs, there's a big spike in people booking short-term rentals for that time. As demand increases and the eclipse gets closer, more short-term rentals are expected to come online. That's according to Julie Marks, the executive director of the nonprofit Vermont Short-Term Rental Alliance. I've heard things from people are going to go stay with their friends and rent their own home out for the weekend to, you know, opening up the RV that's sitting in their driveway. Weather depending, too, Marks says backyard camping could also become an option. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Elodie Reed. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Northeastern University earned a chance to defend its men's beanpot title. The team beat Harvard last night in overtime. Final score was 3-2. to two. That means Northeastern will take on Boston University in next week's championship game. BU beat Boston College in its match. Final score was 4-3. to three. The Bruins will take on the Calgary Flames tonight. That game is at the Garden and starts at 7. Highs in the upper 30s today under partly sunny skies. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with highs near 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com/npr. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive nerve relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. Cities across the U.S. are struggling to manage the tens of thousands of migrants who've been arriving via the country's southern border for more than a year now. Denver is among them. The city rented hundreds of hotel rooms to provide temporary shelter for migrants. But now it's starting to evict some of them, including families. Many are scrambling to figure out how to survive in the Rocky Mountain winter. Kyle Harris with Colorado Public Radio's Denverite site has been watching the evictions, and he joins us now from Denver. Hello, Kyle. Hello. So, Kyle, why is Denver evicting families from hotels now in the middle of winter? New immigrants keep coming every day, and with limited space, the city has to make room. So families who are new to the hotels are now being given 42 days to stay inside, but those who've been in them until now are in the process of having to leave. So let's talk about the number of people that are impacted, and really the number of people who've come to Denver. In a little over a year, Denver has seen an influx of some 38,000 migrants. Many of them have been sent there by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Has the city been using hotel rooms to house all of those migrants? Well, not for everyone, but it has rented rooms for as many as 5,200 at a time, prioritizing families with children. Now, the city initially told families they could stay for 37 days, but when that time ran out and people in the city started seeing kids living on the streets, there was a big uproar. So for a couple of months, the city started letting families stay longer. But now Mayor Mike Johnson says that money's tight and the city can't shelter people indefinitely. And so how many people have had to leave the hotels? Where are they going? So right now, the city says 160 people would be removed yesterday. And by the end of the week, more than 450 people will be removed from the shelters. Uh, Yesterday, I went to two of the hotels and spoke to families. And they're frustrated they had to leave. And they aren't sure where they're headed. There aren't really other shelters available for that many people. And these people leaving the shelter realize that they may soon join camps all over Denver where new immigrants are already living outside and in tents. Hmm. Almost everyone I talked to told me that basically they want to work and they want to be able to pay rent, but currently they're not able to work yet. Most are Venezuelans, many are here legally, but that does not mean they're currently allowed to get jobs. Denver's mayor has been asking the White House and Congress to speed up work authorizations and the border deal in Congress talks about doing just that. I mean, it sounds like these people can't work. A lot of them will no longer have shelter. Is Denver offering the migrants any other options? Yes. So the city has been offering immigrants who want to go to another part of the country free bus tickets. Mm. Um, The most popular cities people want to go to currently are New York and Chicago, where the mayors are already trying to take care of massive new immigrant populations sent from Texas. And the mayors have asked Colorado to stop busing immigrants to them. Is anyone else stepping up to help these people who are getting evicted? Absolutely. It's pretty inspiring. There have been thousands of Denverites who've organized themselves to support the new immigrants. The volunteers are not allowed into the city shelters, but they do stand outside. They offer food, resources, transportation, and more. Some longtime Denver families are sheltering immigrants while they wait for work authorization. And others are actually helping immigrants set up encampments with tents and latrines and places to cook. And then when the city pushes those camps on, the volunteers help them set up a new place to stay. Kyle Harris is a reporter for the news site Denverite. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. 
Have you gotten a recommendation from, say, Netflix or Spotify or Amazon and hated it? Well, you have company. NPR's Bobby Allen reports on a growing movement against the algorithms that control our online lives. Tyler Bainbridge is a former meta engineer who lives in Brooklyn. During the pandemic, he started to get what he calls big tech doom settle over his day-to-day work. When you work at a big company like Facebook, you know, your whole day is like some product manager is telling you to move a button four pixels to the right because 2% of users click it more. There's no soul behind that. Increasingly, he felt like there was also no soul behind the way most people use the Internet. By scrolling social media, logging onto Spotify, Netflix and YouTube, falling down rabbit holes on TikTok, he realized he felt trapped in online platforms that kept pushing more and more hyper-personalized recommendations. You need more opportunities to exit your algorithm and kind of glimpse into someone else's point of view. To escape ever-present algorithms, he recently launched a social media site. The name is A Mouthful. P-I The P-I stands for Perfectly Imperfect. That's a buzzy newsletter he launched in the pandemic. Using the social media app feels like a slower, less chaotic, and more intimate version of Twitter. You're prompted to answer questions like, what did you read last week? And a small group of friends chime in. There's no algorithms or popularity contests. Bainbridge says the site is a protest against what he calls algorithmic culture. The need to share is universal. My mom can go on the app and recommend Shepherd's Pie, and it doesn't feel out of place next to uh, a downtown New Yorker talking about a new band that they like. Bainbridge isn't alone. New Yorker journalist Kyle Chaco recently published the book Filter World that examines how platforms and algorithms are changing culture and society. He says newsletters where one person makes recommendations or websites where people can directly consume and support a musician or artist's work are growing in popularity. And the old is becoming new again, which is just going to a local bookstore or record store and asking for a suggestion. Over the course of the 2010s, we've just been so overexposed to recommendations and manipulated so much by these feeds that we've realized they're not actually delivering what we want. Of course, algorithm doesn't have to be a dirty word. Without them, it's easy to become paralyzed by choice. What movie to stream, what article to read, what album to play. It's pretty overwhelming. Algorithms actually, you know, potentially simplify our lives. Ananya Sen is a professor at Carnegie Mellon who studies algorithms. He says it's easy to grow frustrated that, yet again, Netflix is suggesting when Harry met Sally, or YouTube is, again, pushing a three-year-old SNL skit that you're really not interested in watching. I think what people might be getting slightly tired of are recommender systems that are trained on your past browsing behavior and give you more of the same. More of the same. That's what people online are complaining about. And it makes sense, because algorithms serve up recommendations based on a vast amount of data the AI has gathered on you. If you like this, well, then you might like this. This is true when we listen to podcasts, read articles, shop online, use social media. It's everywhere. Often the machines push us into narrow boxes or lead us into echo chambers. Or worse, they lead to boredom. The algorithm, quote-unquote, works one way for everyone. Again, the New Yorker's Cheka. It would be great if I could tell my Spotify algorithm to surprise me more or give me more weird stuff or longer music or whatever. But right now we just don't have that option at all. Cheka says if you want weirder music, you're better off staying away from Spotify. He says find a DJ who plays a genre of music you like and listen to one of their sets online. It's a human, not a machine, so you might just... Be surprised. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
definitely human here. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll get the latest on damage from a storm that's caused widespread flooding in Southern California, knocking out power to thousands and turning hillsides into rivers of mud. Partly sunny in upper 30s today, mostly cloudy in upper 20s tonight. Tomorrow, a repeat of today, it'll be partly sunny and in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com go, and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Uber says it's laying off nearly 170 people in Boston and closing its office in the Back Bay. Uber says the cuts are related to its closure of the alcohol delivery service Drizzly. The layoffs include remote workers and will begin in April. Gillette Stadium will be called Boston Stadium in marketing leading up to the 2026 World Cup matches. FIFA officials tell the Boston Business Journal they don't allow what they call ambush marketing. That's when a brand tries to take advantage of a big event by creating an association with it. All venues hosting World Cup matches will also need to remove their branding. Massachusetts has a new person to drum up tourism business in the state ahead of the country's 250th anniversary. Sheila Green will be the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism's 250th anniversary coordinator. State leaders announced yesterday Green will work with other tourism offices to bring in visitors. The nation's 250th anniversary will be in 2026. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from the station and from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at Fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. A trial wrapping up this week in Washington, D.C. involves one of the world's most prominent climate scientists. He's suing a right-wing author and a policy analyst for defamation. The case comes at a time of increasing attacks on scientists of all kinds, as NPR's Julia Simon reports. You may not have heard of climate scientist Michael Mann, now a professor at UPenn, but you've likely seen his research. In the late 1990s, he helped make a graph showing thousands of years of relatively stable global temperatures. Then, when humans started burning lots of coal and oil, a dramatic spike upwards. Mann's graph looks like a hockey stick on its side, the blade sticking up. It showed climate change as a picture. This is Kurt Davies at the Center for Climate Integrity. He says because man's hockey stick graph was so effective at helping people understand global warming, it became a target. Consequently, because it became such a powerful image, it was under attack from the beginning. Davies says the attacks came from groups that reject climate science, some funded by the fossil fuel industry. But in this trial in D.C., more than a decade in the making, man is suing right-wing author Mark Stein and policy analyst 
Rand Simberg. Mann formerly worked at Penn State. In the midst of many attacks on Mann's research, including the hacking of his emails, Penn State opened an investigation. The university found his work held up. But Simberg and Stein disagreed. In an online post, Simberg compared Mann to former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, a convicted child sex abuser. Simberg wrote that Mann was the Sandusky of climate science, writing that Mann molested and tortured data. Stein called Mann's research fraudulent. In court, Mann argued that he lost funding and opportunities and was defamed. Stein is representing himself. He said if Penn State's president covered up child sexual assault, why wouldn't he cover up Mann's bad science? Mann and Stein declined to speak to NPR. One of Simberg's lawyers, Victoria Weatherford, said inflammatory does not equal defamatory and that her client is allowed to express his opinion even if it's wrong. No matter how offensive or distasteful or heated it is, that speech is absolutely protected under the First Amendment when it's said against a public figure if the person saying it believed that what they said was true. Mann is far from the only climate scientist facing attacks. Lauren Kurtz directs a legal defense fund that helps climate scientists under fire. I can tell you that we help more scientists every year than the year before. We actually broke a record in 2023. She says last year they helped over 50 researchers. In recent years, dozens of climate scientists from the federal government reached out to her group, many alleging they were censored under the Trump administration. Kurt says that other scientists have reached out too, some working on COVID research. The vast majority of scientists that we work with, like they don't want to be public. Scientists like Michael Mann, I think, are actually in the minority in the fact that they're willing to be so public about what's happened to them. Attacks on scientists are ultimately attacks on science, says Peter Hotez, professor of pediatrics and molecular virology at Baylor College of Medicine. Hotez writes about anti-vaccine movements, and he sees a growing threat to scientific research itself. Young people looking at future careers, looking at how scientists are attacked, are going to say, well, why do I want to go into this profession? So it's going to have long-term ramifications. As for how to stop attacks on scientists, Hotez says he's glad man is fighting back in court, but he doesn't think a bunch of lawsuits is a sustainable solution. He wants to be spending his time working on new vaccines, not working with lawyers. Hotez says he's comparing notes with man to try to figure out something else to do. Julia Simon, NPR News. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 820 here on Morning Edition, France is hoping to boost some of suburban Paris's poorest neighborhoods by locating venues there for the summer's Olympic Games. But the plans are raising fears of gentrification. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering insulation replacements and home energy assessments designed to help your home stay comfortable and be energy efficient. GoEndlessEnergy.com Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Voters will head to the polls in Nevada today as the presidential primary there gets underway. President Biden says federal help is coming to areas of Southern California that are being hit by a storm causing flooding, evacuations and power outages. And the House is set to vote today on whether to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over border security. 
Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. Upper 30s today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. More clouds move in tonight and it'll be in the upper 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. It was expected to be a pivotal moment in Bitcoin's short history. For the first time, regular investors could put money into Bitcoin through a popular kind of investment fund. But, as NPR's David Gura reports, the reality has not lived up to the hype, at least not yet. Investing in crypto has always been clunky and complicated, but a decision by the Securities and Exchange Commission to approve about a dozen new investment funds, ETFs in Wall Street speak, that track the price of Bitcoin promised to change that and to make it more of a mainstream investment. It was also expected to spark a new boom in Bitcoin. Crypto investors waiting with bated breath for approval of a Bitcoin ETF. This is a watershed moment, no question about it. The Bitcoin ETF could send prices even more to the moon. For a decade, regulators were resistant, but a federal court decision forced their hand. Last month, the SEC gave the green light to 11 spot Bitcoin ETFs, several of which are backed by some of the world's largest money managers. Lee Reiners is a fellow at the Duke Financial Economic Center. You basically are creating an interstate freeway that's connecting the crypto economy with the traditional financial system. ETFs are a $7 trillion industry. The funds track baskets of stocks and commodities and indices like the S&P 500. But the response to Bitcoin ETFs has not been as strong as forecast. And Reiner says that's due in part to all the negative publicity surrounding crypto in the months leading up to the debut. The cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, collapsed spectacularly. And last year, its founder and CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, was convicted of seven criminal counts. He could spend the rest of his life in prison. Well, since these ETFs started trading last month, Bitcoin's price has fallen by about 10 percent. Craig Erlum is a senior analyst at Oanda, and he says crypto investors may have gotten ahead of themselves. Two years ago, people were talking about, could Bitcoin reach 250000 When is it going to reach a million dollars? There is always over-optimism in this area. Bitcoin thrives on hype because there's no real use case for the cryptocurrency, according to Duke University's Lee Reiners, who says these new funds haven't changed that. This is an asset that has traded entirely on sentiment. Which is a big reason regulators have been so wary. When the SEC finally did approve these new funds, SEC Chair Gary Gensler emphasized he and his colleagues were not endorsing Bitcoin itself. Reiners, who calls himself a crypto skeptic, concedes the creation of Bitcoin ETFs was probably the biggest moment in the history of Bitcoin other than Bitcoin's creation. And it's still too early to pass judgment on it. Crypto and Bitcoin in particular is as much of an ideology as it is an asset class. And the thing about ideologies is that they can last a long time. So who knows what's going to happen with crypto, but it's not going away. Reiners does wonder how long the market can sustain this many Bitcoin ETFs and if this will lead to Bitcoin becoming more common in investment portfolios. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
We've been speaking to Palestinians about their vision for a post-war Gaza. Today is the last in our series of conversations, and we hear from the man who founded the first rock band in Gaza, Osprey V. Rajiel Jarou also helped cultivate a thriving, creative hub out of his music store. All that is abandoned now. He and his family fled south to try and find safety. Using a foreign eSIM and standing on a ladder, he got enough reception to call us. In the midst of war, he spoke about his hopes for the future. As Osprey, we say uh, we are the voice of the voiceless, or we are the tongue of the unheard, because there's a lot of stories that you've never seen and you'll never see in the media, but we will highlight as storytellers. Destroy every break of every wrong. The whole world is talking about, well, what happens to Gaza when this war is over? And who governs Gaza? And you wrote a song called Home, and in the song you wrote, this land is my home, the world is my home. So I want to ask you, you're 31, you're Palestinian, you live in Gaza, you were building a music scene that didn't exist. So when you think of a Gaza after this war, what does that Gaza look like? Gaza is basically like a phoenix. It never dies, mm. even if you destroy everything within. We have strong faith. We have strong passion. We have strong passion to live. We called our band Osprey. You do know the, the Osprey. It's the, the kind of the eagle, right? Mm -hmm. One of the birds. It has a lot of pride. It lives in the hardest circumstances. The stereotyping about the Gazan people being poor, stupid, and uh, illiterate and stuff like that is super false. The people of Gaza are more like me more like people that are talking to you right now, more like our music. We're here to participate in our humanity. We're here to participate in being human. This is why we say in home, this land is my home, but it's not only the land, it's the dream, it's the broken dream, it's the broken stories. It's the walls, even after all of this destruction that you see in the beginning of the song, we rebuild it again. We'll revive again, and Gaza will stand still, resilient. You're a part of Gaza's culture. Like we talked about, you are building this music scene with other people. I mean, losing all of that, what does that mean for the future of culture in Gaza? We're really trying so hard, actually, uh, to get out of Gaza right now. Not because we hate Gaza, we love Gaza the most, but after this war, and being logical, we worked so hard, like for 10 years, to build this scene. And even after we lost everything in here, I don't think I can restart again, especially with the band. I'm 31 right now, I'm not going to start again and just like, okay, build another place and go. No, the safest way is actually to go, travel, take this production to the next level and deliver it to the max. So then what does that mean for the future of Gaza if you guys go out and other young, smart, entrepreneurial people like you leave Gaza. The influence we made in Gaza is not something that is based on the person himself being there. It's an idea that we got into the minds of the people here. We're making a legacy. This place is going to flourish. You're going to see other bands than Osprey. We're going to support other bands than Osprey to spread the message and to talk about that. Even if we traveled to facilitate for other people in Gaza here and to facilitate for ourselves as well. Mm. The idea is an idea and it grows up and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger by the time. That's Raji al Jaru, a musician and co-founder of the rock band Osprey V. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Leila.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm Michelle Martin. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. They fall to the upper 20s tonight and we'll have overcast skies tomorrow, partly sunny and near 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com and Pomfret School, a top-ranked private high school for boarding and day students in northeastern Connecticut. Discover a more human way to prepare for college and life at pomfret.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is pledging federal help for Southern California, where the impact from a powerful storm has led to at least three deaths. It's Tuesday, February 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, independents can't participate in Nevada's primary or caucus this week, and that's making it tough to know how they'll lean in November. We don't have a lot of polling, and we don't have a lot of elections where they've weighed in. So right now, they're a wild card. Also this hour, Britain's King Charles is being treated for cancer. Plus, Stewart Healthcare says financial issues caused by low reimbursement rates are threatening its Massachusetts hospitals, but some observers are pointing to CEO Ralph De La Torre. Ralph decided that his first priority was to make himself wealthy. Partly sunny in 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Republicans in Congress are voicing opposition to a bipartisan bill on immigration and border security negotiated in the Senate. As NPR's Claudia Grisales reports, much of the opposition to the measure is coming from House Speaker Mike Johnson and former President Donald Trump. In a late-night closed-door meeting, Senate Republicans railed against a bipartisan plan to reshape the U.S.-Mexico border and provide aid to key allies. Oklahoma Republican Senator Jim Lankford, who helped craft the months-long deal, said he's no longer confident that a procedural vote on the bill can proceed this week. Any bipartisan bill that comes out, some people are going to look at it and say, I like some parts and I don't like some parts. It's welcome to the Senate writing legislation. Lankford says it's likely Senate Republicans will vote no together if a procedural vote is still held this week. The reversal comes as House Republicans, including Speaker Mike Johnson, slammed the plan and said it would not get a House vote. Claudia Rizales, NPR News. The city of Dearborn, Michigan, is increasing its police presence after a Wall Street Journal opinion piece called it America's Jihad Capital. As Nargis Rahman of member station WDET reports, President Biden says the piece could lead to anti-Arab hate in Dearborn. Abraham Ayash is the majority leader of the Michigan House of Representatives. He says the rhetoric in the Wall Street Journal piece is a correlation of hatred spewed in the U.S. and Gaza, where thousands of people have been killed in the Israel-Hamas war. This type of language and this type of acceptance and sort of normalization of anti-Muslim and anti-Arab hate that leads to the murder and harassment 
and violence against Americans right here at home. State Representative Alabas Farhat is putting a resolution out today to reclaim Dearborn's narrative, saying the city is home to patriotic Arab Americans and Muslims who are proud to live in the U.S. For NPR News, I'm Nargis Rahman in Detroit. In the first report on the response to the deadly wildfire on the Hawaiian island of Maui in August that left 100 people dead and destroyed the historic town of Lahaina, police say there were many concerns, among them staffing problems that day. The nearly 100-page report is recommending equipping patrol cars with kits to remove downed trees and utility poles from roadways and also better communications and equipment. Maui Police Chief John Pelletier says conditions made it hard to even and use phones. 80 mile an hour winds, and I just I say that because when you're walking in the wind and you have your cell phone, can can the person on the other end of the cell phone hear everything you're saying? I'm going to say no, and so one of the things we learned was let's get earpieces for our folks. The wildfire was the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than 100 years. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local advocates for immigrants are expressing concern about a border deal reached by President Biden and leaders in the Senate. The deal would limit the number of migrants allowed to enter the country and, in many cases, restrict asylum applications. Elizabeth Sweet is the executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. We were surprised by how far this language goes in shutting down the border and getting our existing asylum system. Sweet says she does support provisions in the bill that provide aid to cities and towns dealing with large numbers of arriving migrants. Governor Healy says she supports the bipartisan measure and is asking Congress to approve it. Wait times in Massachusetts emergency rooms are longer than ever. Reports obtained by the Boston Globe show more patients are spending 12 to 24 hours at certain hospitals to get care. The reports show that understaffing is contributing to the backlog of ER cases. Some officials say scheduling elective surgeries on weekends could help with the backlog of cases. Locals are celebrating Black History Month in Cambridge with bookmarks. The Cambridge Black History Project has partnered with schools and libraries to distribute bookmarks that highlight the lives of 23 local black trailblazers. WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports that list includes artists, business leaders, and scholars. As a kid in the 60s, James Spencer would go to the library to read up on local history. Now, as the Cambridge Black History Project president, Spencer wants to help teach a new generation. There was so much of a, a excitement about national figures, and we've heard them all, whether it's Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King, but we thought at the Cambridge Black History Project that people weren't hearing about our own local heroes. One of the trailblazers, 94-year-old retired graphic designer Frank Lucas, helped design the bookmarks. In the 50s, Lucas was the first African-American illustrator and photographer in Boston's advertising industry. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Hollywood star Annette Benning is expected in Cambridge today. The actor is scheduled to receive the Hasty Pudding Woman of the Year Award at Harvard University. Benning is nominated for an Oscar this year for her performance as long-distance swimmer in the movie Nyad. Actor Barry Keegan received the Hasty Pudding Man of the Year Award yesterday. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Northeastern and Boston University will go head-to-head in the men's beanpot championship. Northeastern defeated Harvard 3-2 yesterday in overtime. Meanwhile, Boston University beat Boston College 4-3. The two winners will face off for the title game next week. The Bruins will host the Calgary Flames tonight. Puck drops at 7. Mostly cloudy and breezy today with temperatures reaching the mid to upper 30s. Tonight, the clouds stick around and it dips below freezing with a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. In Southern California, days of rain have turned hills into rivers of mud. At least three people have been killed by a dangerous storm in Northern California from hurricane winds. And back in Southern California, some homes have been washed away and firefighters have been busy rescuing people from rushing waters and stranded vehicles. President Joe Biden called to offer federal assistance to L.A. Mayor Karen Bass. We'll get any help on the way as soon as you guys request it. So just let me know. That's why I'm calling. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mr. President. NPR's Nathan Rod has been covering this storm from Ventura on the California coast between L.A. and Santa Barbara, and he is with us now. Good morning, Nate. Hey, good morning, Michelle. So I understand that the president's call came during the mayor's press briefing last night where she was describing what she saw. Can you just tell us what else she said and what she did see? Yeah, so she had spent the day basically traveling around different parts of L.A. and looking at various homes in various parts of the city that have been impacted by mud flows. And when I say mud flows, I mean earth that had gotten so saturated with water that it basically turned into this thick, destructive soup. Our colleague Liz Baker visited a home in Culver City, which is its own city in L.A. Its backyard is just now totally mud. Here's the home's owner, Ivo Panyatov. Grass turned upside down. There is... Actually, one tree that is falling from the mudslide, it looks like a hurricane went through it. So L.A. Mayor Karen Bass and city officials said that more than 120 debris flows have been reported as of last night just in the city of Los Angeles alone. And we know that there have been many others in the broader region. Do we have any sense of how much longer these mudslides are going to be a risk for people? I mean, as long as it keeps raining and probably a little bit after, because when I say like the ground is saturated here, Michelle, I mean, it is it is wet. You know, downtown Los Angeles got more than six inches of rain in less than 24 hours. Parts of the Santa Monica Mountains just north of the city had upwards of 10 inches. So any more rain on those areas could trigger additional debris flows. And do we have a sense of how much longer it's going to be raining? Yeah, the question everybody wants to answer, right? Uh, I talked to a meteorologist at the National Weather Service here last night who said this river of transported tropical moisture, this atmospheric river, is weakening, but it's definitely not over yet. It's raining right now outside of my house, and we should continue to see scattered showers and thunderstorms through Wednesday. But, you know, where I am, about an hour's drive north of Los Angeles, even with the rain, people are definitely feeling like the worst of this is over. I visited a part of Ventura yesterday that had been flooded early 
earlier this week and talked to the owner of my favorite surf shop, which had water standing up to its entrance on Sunday, and they were able to keep it out with sandbags. Uh, the store's owner, Bill Hubina, says unless flood infrastructure gets improved in this area, in his opinion, he doesn't think they're going to continue to be so lucky in the future. This will continue getting worse every year till we really do flood eventually. But it's just mother nature and the tides are rising. And it's global warming, basically. So I heard him say it's global warming, Nate, but is that what's really driving these rains? So this is a very complicated answer, Michelle. Look, we know sea levels are rising. We know the coastlines are changing. Uh, with atmospheric rivers, it's a little more complicated. Basically, scientists know that human-caused climate change is making precipitation events more likely. Warm air holds more moisture. What They have not detected a signal of that, though, in the data so far. That is NPR's Nathan Rott in Ventura, California. Nate, take care of yourself. Thank you. About a third of Nevada's voters are registered independents, but they won't, by law, be able to vote in the state's presidential primaries today, nor in the GOP caucuses later this week. They represent a significant voting block in the purple state. So what issues will drive them to the polls in November? Our colleague, A. Martinez, put that question to Sandra Kosgrov. She's a history professor at the College of Southern Nevada and the executive director of the civic engagement nonprofit Vote Nevada. Tell us about Nevada's voters who are not registered with either party. How do they fit in? What's their particular demographic? So um, I teach at the community college, and I know a lot of my students who are first-time voters um, have registered nonpartisan because they're interested in issues but not necessarily, you know, wedded to one particular party. But Nevada tends to be a little bit on the kind of don't-tell-me-what-to-do independent streak. <laughs> and so people will register nonpartisan just because they don't want to have a party, you know, telling them you're going to do this or that. So it's just a lot of people who are very issue oriented. And what kind of a mix would you say? Are we talking uh, white voters, black voters, Latinos? Uh, what's that mix like? It's a mix of everybody. So I know where the people I'm talking to, it's my young Latino voters. I've got some older white voters. It just, it's a lot of people for a lot of different reasons have decided to, to keep that kind of independent moniker that I'm a nonpartisan voter and that I should be able to split my ticket. I should be able to decide for who I want without a party telling me. So how crucial a role have they played in previous presidential elections? Interesting question, because 2010, 2011, that group of voters was pretty small, but it has bloomed extremely in the last little while. Part of that is because we adopted automatic voter registration at the DMV. But when people are asked, are you aware you're registered? They'll say, yeah, and they, they understand they're registered nonpartisan. But we don't have a lot of polling and we don't have a lot of elections where they've weighed in. So right now they're a wild card. How much have you heard from the people that you've spoken to that they're the way they are because they're just fed up with the whole system and the whole way it's set up? Yeah, I've heard kind of a pox on both their houses type of comments. <laughs> okay. They seem corrupt. Everything seems chaotic. My students actually say they feel like they're being bullied by the parties because of the negative campaigning and just kind of the way the parties treat people. I hear all kinds of, of reasons, but a lot of I just don't like the status quo. I want to be registered to vote and I want to participate, but they just don't like the political parties right now. What are the issues that they would like to hear presidential candidates focus on? I hear a lot from my students and the people I talk to about housing, the unaffordability of housing, the lack of housing, high rents, volatility in rent, that they can't get more than a six month lease. And then every time their lease is up, the rent goes up. 
And it's not like they can just get a raise and find someplace else to live because we just have a shortage of housing. What other things have you heard? Um, inflation, just how expensive things are and that people just don't feel like their paycheck is going far enough. They'll say, it just feels like I'm getting farther and farther behind. What reasons, if any, have they given you for perhaps sitting out this election? I don't hear a lot of excitement for Trump or Biden. And I have a lot of younger students who are saying, really, it's the same old white dudes again. I mean, there's got to be other people. The Democratic field in 2020, when they came through Nevada for the, the presidential primary, there was like 15 people on that ticket. And everybody felt like there was somebody that represented their views. And now, I mean, we're only like three states in and they're being told, nope, it's going to be these two dudes and that's all you get. And so people are looking for more choice. No Labels is a group that's trying to offer a third-party presidential candidate this year. And in August, it qualified in Nevada as a minor party. Now, Sandra, what does that tell you about the state's electorate and, and where their head and heart is right now about this? Again, I think it's telling me that voters are mad at the two political parties and are looking for something else. Whether No Labels is going to be able to attract those voters, I'm not sure because we don't know who they're going to run on a ticket or if they'll even run somebody. But I think that's a real threat here is that you're going to have people who are saying, I don't want to vote, being pulled in if No Labels comes in and says, here, we have another option for you and we want to listen to you. I think that could have a big impact in Nevada. How big of an impact to where it could swing the White House kind of an impact? Well, 33% of our voters are registered nonpartisan. That's the largest group of voters in the state of Nevada. That's a huge treasure trove of voters for a third party to come in and talk to. And if they can pull them in, to vote for that third party, that could flip a race. Sandra Cosgrove is executive director of the civic engagement nonprofit Vote Nevada. Sandra, thank you very much. Thank you. The reigning British monarch, King Charles III, disclosed his recent cancer diagnosis to his siblings and children before sharing the news with the broader British public. But as Villa Marx reports, the relatively unusual decision to disclose the monarch's health details and so quickly represents a decision to raise awareness about illness and disease. It was only last month that Charles announced he would undergo a straightforward operation on an enlarged prostate, a common enough procedure in a man of his age. At the time, he said he wanted his own public experience with his prostate to encourage others to ensure they too made time for medical checkups. But it was last week, during his brief period as an inpatient, when doctors made the discovery that's led to this new cancer diagnosis, prompting a series of regular treatments as an outpatient that began on Monday. Buckingham Palace has not revealed details about the King's precise prognosis, only saying in a statement that the cancer uncovered was unrelated to his benign prostate enlargement, and that Charles remained, quote, wholly positive about his treatment. Well wishes flooded in from around the world, including those from the British Parliament and its Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. Our thoughts are, of course, with His Majesty and his family, and with all wish to send him our very best wishes for the successful treatment and a speed recovery following tonight's news. The monarch will maintain some of his constitutional duties as head of state, including weekly meetings with the Prime Minister and as much daily document signing as his doctors will allow. But in only his second year in the role, the 75-year-old will step back from more public duties and appearances, activities the statement said he looked forward to resuming as soon as possible. Last week, his wife, Queen Camilla, like Charles, a long-time cancer charity patron, helped mark the opening of a new cancer centre at a London hospital. And the royal family has said Charles was sharing this fresh diagnosis to, quote, assist public understanding for all those around the world who were affected by cancer. 
President Biden said he was concerned about the diagnosis and together with his wife Jill would be praying for a quote, swift and full recovery. He added that navigating a cancer diagnosis, its treatment and subsequent survival requires quote, hope and absolute courage. Rishi Sunak, who's held regular one-to-one -one conversations with Charles, said the entire UK would be wishing him well, and he expected the King would be, quote, back to full strength in no time. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR. We're following news that the U.S. House plans to vote today on impeachment charges against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Also, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting leaders in Egypt and Qatar to push for a ceasefire in Gaza that would include a release of hostages held by Hamas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Dartmouth College is going back to requiring the SAT after it found that some students were not submitting test scores because they mistakenly thought those scores weren't high enough to help them get in. It's 820. Hey, it's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of WBUR Podcasts. My mom turns 81 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. Mostly cloudy today. We'll have a high in the upper 30s. Tonight, overcast with lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Join us this Thursday at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris. She'll be talking about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. For decades, French leaders have been promising renewal for the Paris suburbs. The gritty housing projects outside the French capital are known for the despair of generations of young people of immigrant descent. Now, thanks in part to this summer's Olympic Games, things may be changing. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. The Olympic Village rises in the town of Saint-Ouen, the closest of Paris's northern suburbs. Paris secured the Games partly on the promise to regenerate Seine-Saint-Denis, this region north of the city that remains one of the poorest in France. We meet Karim Boimran, mayor of Saint-Ouen. Saint-Ouen, it's a city like Detroit. A lot of factories, a lot of working class heroes. And the policy was based on um, sharing progress and give culture to everyone, give health to everyone, give lodging to everyone. But when the factories closed in the 70s and 80s, he says the only thing residents shared was poverty and the chasm with Paris widened. A huge expansion of public transport with four new underground lines and 68 stations in the suburbs is being hastened because of the games. Boimran says the Olympics are a game changer for the suburbs. Because it gives the opportunity to uh, bring some big public infrastructures in all of Saint-Saint-Denis. We can testify that Olympic Games give the opportunity to north of Paris to have the same equality than the Paris downtown. The day we visit, Boimran and other officials were inaugurating a 140,000-square-foot facility that once repaired rail cars. Now it's dedicated to culture, food, music, and theater. Officials remarked jokingly that Paris may soon become the suburb of Saint-Ouen. The enthusiasm is not shared by everyone. Not far from the event, young men wait their turn for a stylish haircut in a barbershop. Everyone here is of North African descent. They say Paris is another world and they don't think the Olympics will change that. 35-year-old hairdresser Mohammed is cutting 23-year-old Rashid's hair in this country which values privacy neither wants to give his last name. Young people will work for a month during the Olympics, says Mohammed, but after that, the games are more of a hassle than anything else, says Rashid. Prices, police pressure and problems are going up. Outside the barbershop, 20-year-old Musa is headed for training. He's an amateur boxer and says he's excited about the games, but agrees there's a downside. It's a good thing because many boxers of the world, they will come here from America, from Mexico, from Africa. The Olympic bring a lot of opportunities for, for us all, but uh, the police are a little bit dangerous now. He says the police are aggressive, always clearing young people off the streets, accusing them of dealing drugs. They come and they say, uh, don't uh, stay here. I say, but why? I, I live here. They don't want that we are on the street because they think we are not a good image, too many black, uh, Moroccan people. Musa says many poor families are being forced to move as their buildings are torn down to make way for the Olympic Village. One of them is 63-year-old Huria Ayadi, who's lived here her whole life since her parents immigrated from Algeria in the 50s. But she admires the new construction. They did a good job. They didn't build them on top of each other, she says. After the Games, the Olympic Village will become private housing for 6,000 people. A quarter will be reserved for low-income tenants, 
Ayadi hopes to be one of them. I'd like an apartment with a view on the Seine River and with a balcony where I can put my plants. I'd like to see the sunsets, she says, so I've asked for an apartment that faces south. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Saint-Ouen, France. Between 2017 and 2022, U.S. law enforcement seized over 9,000 pounds of magic mushrooms, or mushrooms containing the psychedelic drug psilocybin. That's according to a new study published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. As Ritu Chatterjee reports, the findings come at a time when there's growing scientific interest in psychedelics for treating mental illnesses. Joseph Palomar is an epidemiologist at NYU's Langone Health. He studies drug use. I study the party scene, particularly the New York City party scene. These people are known for using ecstasy, ketamine, cocaine. But in a recent study, he found a growing number of people using magic mushrooms or shrooms. I just think more people are becoming open to it. And a handful of states have even decriminalized the drug. But it is still illegal at the federal level. So Palomar wanted to know if the drug was becoming more readily available. We got our hands on some very good seizure data, law enforcement seizure data. We have been basically using the seizure data as an indicator of availability on the illicit market. What they found was that in 2017, there were around 400 drug busts of psilocybin mushrooms. In 2022, there were nearly 1,400. What I think the results indicate is that shroom availability has likely been increasing. Palomar says he and his colleagues also found that the largest amounts were seized in the West, where states have more liberal policies when it comes to psychedelic drugs. Just because it's decriminalized doesn't mean that you could have a thousand pounds of shrooms uh, behind the counter of a store. All of this reflects a growing demand for the drug, says Dr. Nora Volkov. The sellers are able to sell the product because more people are using it. Volkov directs the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which funded the study. She says while recent studies suggest that psychedelic drugs like psilocybin could revolutionize treatment for mental health problems like depression and PTSD, there can be serious side effects too. It can trigger a full-blown psychosis. And some of these psychoses can be extremely, extremely scary. And so for anyone considering using the drug recreationally, Volkov urges caution. Read the strategy and PR news. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, Stewart Healthcare says financial issues are putting its nine Massachusetts hospitals at risk. But as WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, many local healthcare leaders are blaming the company's CEO. It's 8.29. WBUR supporters include Arts Thursdays at Harvard, Sounds of the Americas, Jazz with Yosvani Terry and Friends, Thursday at 7 p.m., harvard.edu slash artsthursdays, and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ztechnet.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's unclear if a bipartisan immigration and border security bill unveiled by Senate negotiators will go anywhere in Congress. Republicans in the House and Senate say the measure doesn't fix the problems at the U.S. southern border. NPR's Giles Snyder says the bill includes tens of billions of dollars in additional U.S. aid for Ukraine. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is warning that Americans will feel the consequences if Ukraine is defeated. So this is a crucial fulcrum moment where we must, must do our best and stand together. The $118 billion bipartisan package was months in the making. It combines new enforcement efforts along the southern border with Mexico with more than $60 billion to help Ukraine fight off the Russian invasion and additional aid for Israel. But Senate Republicans are now balking and top House Republicans are opposed. House Speaker Mike Johnson says he won't put the bill on the floor for a vote opting instead to move a standalone bill to provide funding for Israel's fight against Hamas. Trial Snyder, NPR News. This is presidential primary day in Nevada. Nikki Haley is hoping for a win in the Republican contest as the only major GOP candidate. Former President Donald Trump is not taking part. He's competing in Thursday's Republican caucus in Nevada. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A judge will not revoke bail for the man charged with crashing his car into a Hingham Apple store in 2022. One person was killed in that crash, and more than 20 others were injured. A Plymouth Superior Court judge made the ruling yesterday. Bradley Rain pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder for the crash. A court spokesperson tells the Boston Globe the judge also required Rain to abstain from alcohol. The city of Gloucester is looking at how climate change will impact low-lying roads and other vulnerable areas of the city. Gemma Wilkins is the city's sustainability coordinator. She says the city is getting just over $58,000 for the study. It'll look at data and initially identify two areas of low-lying roads as models for the engineers to work on. And then work with residents in that area to, to do some kind of like walk around, look at the area, hear from residents where, where things are flooding, what they're ex- experiencing on a day-to-day basis, and share some of the results of the analysis and, and what the engineers come up with as potential solutions. Wilkins says she hopes that this study is a proactive step in understanding what climate change could mean for Gloucester's low-lying roads. The former headquarters of Worcester-based insurance company Fallon Health could soon be converted to apartments. The Worcester City Council tonight will consider a proposal to convert the 11-story building into housing. The plan before councillors involves construction of nearly 200 apartments. The developer is seeking an incremental tax plan from the city. The Boston Police Department is honoring an officer who was shot and killed during a traffic stop 30 years ago. As part of Black History Month, the department is honoring Beresford Wayne Anderson. Anderson spent 14 years with the department. A commemorative hero sign was placed where he was killed. It's 8.33. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. 
This year's men's beanpot championship game will be between Northeastern and Boston University. Yesterday, Northeastern earned a chance to defend its title when the team beat Harvard in overtime. Meanwhile, BU won its match against Boston College 4-3. The teams will face off for the title game next week. The Bruins will look for a win against Calgary tonight. They skate with the Flames at the Garden at 7. Highs in the upper 30s today under partly sunny skies. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with highs near 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Dartmouth College and Ivy League School in New Hampshire announced it is reinstating standardized testing requirements, the SAT or the ACT, as a requirement for admission after going test optional during the pandemic. Dartmouth says that the decision is based on research the college did that shows including a test score might have actually helped disadvantaged students get in. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny covers higher education, and she's with us now to tell us more about this. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so tell us, how did all this come about? So a group of professors at Dartmouth found evidence that in the years when the college was test optional, disadvantaged students were more likely to leave out their test scores. But those scores were sometimes high enough and might have helped them get into the college. Here's Bruce Sasserdote. He's an economics professor at Dartmouth and one of the researchers. They don't know that their 1400 might be a great score, given the challenges of their neighborhood and educational environment. And so they can't be expected to know, and they really handicap themselves in the process. Sasserdote says Dartmouth is working on ways to better communicate to students what a helpful score might be so that students in the future aren't scared off by the testing requirement. Okay, Alyssa, so Dartmouth is one of just a few dozen highly selective schools in the U.S. I was looking at the recent class of admits. A third went to independent schools. That's three times as many as in the U.S. overall. 11% are legacies. So you get the picture, right? Not the hugest group in the world. So why do you think this is important? Like, why should we care? Dartmouth is not economically diverse. Here's why it's important. During the pandemic, hundreds of schools went test optional, including less selective colleges and many public universities. I talked with Zachary Blemmer about this. He's an assistant professor of economics at Princeton. He says lots of those schools are deciding right now whether or not to keep those flexible testing policies. I'm concerned that other very different universities will sort of join the bandwagon of the return to the SAT without themselves considering carefully whether the SAT aligns with their admissions objectives. He's done really interesting research looking at a program in California that admitted students with high GPAs and low test scores. And he found those students did a lot better than expected, and they took advantage of opportunities and resources and had successful careers after graduating. So at the end of the day, Alyssa, so what do we think about these standardized tests? Are they helpful or are they unhelpful? That's kind of up for interpretation. And interpretation is the core of the selective college admissions process. Andrew Ho, a professor of education at Harvard, says this really all comes down to human judgment and making sure that application readers don't get obsessed with the test like culture sometimes is. 
Well, you know, we have a lot of experience that says that people misinterpret and overemphasize numbers. These are humans rendering judgments, right? And you hope that they have expertise. <laughs> because in the college application process, Michelle, there are inequities everywhere. In essays, extracurriculars, grades, and definitely tests. We know that better test scores correlate with family income. We also know that schools with the majority of Black or Latino students are more likely to be under-resourced, and those students are more likely to have lower test scores. All of this is even more complicated by the fact that it is now illegal to use race in admissions, thanks to the Supreme Court, another piece of the puzzle that admissions officers cannot use in interpreting a test score. That is NPR's Alyssa Nadworny. Alyssa, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. One of the nation's top spy chiefs is retiring. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin joined a small group of reporters on a rare trip to the National Security Agency to hear from the outgoing director. It's not often the NSA, the nation's electronic spy agency, welcomes outsiders, especially journalists. But we arrive in Fort Meade, Maryland, secure our phones and metal lockers, and then get fingerprinted and ushered onto a bus that will take us to the National Operations Center, deep in the heart of the intelligence agency's campus. This is where analysts and operators spy on digital signals, where military leaders come up with plans to launch hacking operations, and where experts try and secure the government's networks from outside hackers. We funnel into a big conference room. Then we introduce ourselves to General Paul Nakasone, the outgoing leader of the NSA and the U.S. military cyber wing, U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming. Uh, he started this job in May 2018, six years serving under both President Trump and President Biden. It's an especially long tenure. After years of global crises and wars, He's hanging up his keyboard. Russia small group, solar winds, colonial pipeline, Afghan retrograde, Russia, Ukraine, high altitude balloons, Israel, Hamas. He lists just a few of those trials. Nakasone says his priorities on day one, like counterterrorism, they've shifted quite a bit towards Russia, China, cyber criminals even. It's a much different world today. We were not talking about cybersecurity as national security as we do today. Cybersecurity as national security. That's how serious it is. Nakasone says war will probably always involve explosions and violence, but cyber and technology are playing a bigger and bigger role. Being able to secure your network's data and weapon systems, I think become even more important in the future. One of the biggest threats today, Nakasone says, is China. It's a diplomatic, economic, and military rival. But it's also got dangerous plans in cyberspace. We have found the Chinese on a critical infrastructure, and that's just wrong. He's talking about a hacking group called Volt Typhoon. Chinese state hackers who the U.S. government has found burrowed into networks in Guam, in routers, in U.S. water systems. The Chinese need to own this. They need to own the fact that what are you doing in the water? He says they're lying in wait to strike if war breaks out, like if China invaded Taiwan. A cyber attack against U.S. infrastructure, like shutting off the water, might help Beijing cause chaos and maybe even throw a monkey wrench into any U.S. plans to respond. But there are already several wars going on. Before Russia invaded almost two years ago, U.S. Cyber Command sent a team to help shore up Ukraine's cyber defenses. And then, NSA worked feverishly to publicly expose Russia's plans. Who would ever imagine that our most sensitive intelligence would be sanitized and released? If you would have asked me that on the 7th of May 2018, you probably would have gotten a pretty curt response. But yet, we figured out a way to do that. But in the middle of all this, 
Nagasone admits the NSA is still working to win back American trust. After former NSA contractor Edward Snowden leaked documents about NSA surveillance in 2013, he says the agency has had a reputation problem. In fact, the first thing he said to us was in response to a recent news story about NSA purchasing internet browsing records from companies in bulk. There are no, no NSA programs focused on monitoring Americans' use of the internet. Snowden's ghost still lurks in these halls. Nakasone's successor, General Tim Hawk, will have to wrestle with that specter and with Congress to renew a key surveillance authority known as Section 702 this spring. At the end of our visit, Nakasone brings us to the nerve center of the National Operations Center, where giant screens display the news, blown-up maps and satellite imagery, and a list of priorities for the day. The strikes against U.S. forces in Jordan are at the top closely followed by the war between Israel and Hamas, the war between Russia and Ukraine, China, and finally, North Korea. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming. It's 5 p.m. We leave as a new team of NSA officials takes over to continue to monitor the world's networks. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour, or in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report compares earning reports out this week from the affordable Elf Beauty brand and the luxury brand Estee Lauder, which announced yesterday it's cutting thousands of jobs. Partly sunny in upper 30s today, mostly cloudy in upper 20s tonight. Tomorrow, a repeat of today, partly sunny in upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Massachusetts Coastal Railroad is acquiring some tracks from Bay Colony Railroad. The 35 miles of rail will bring Mass Coastal's total miles of track to 132. The company tells the Boston Globe the acquisition will reduce road congestion and greenhouse gases. The Atlantic Inn on Block Island is being renovated before the 2024 season. Developers tell the Boston Business Journal there will be new windows and air conditioning. The inn's restaurant and lobby are also getting a makeover. Developers say they wanted to keep most of the historic Rhode Island Hotel the same. A popular pizza spot in Chelsea is expanding to Somerville. Chow Pizza will soon open in Ball Square. The new location will have more space and a slightly different menu. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night. Presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. You're with WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. With Stewart Healthcare said to be negotiating a potential lifeline for its nine Massachusetts hospitals, questions are being raised about the company's CEO. Ralph De La Torre oversaw the deal that created Stewart with backing from private equity. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, many Massachusetts healthcare leaders blame the company's problems on greed, and some are taking particular aim at De La Torre, including those who helped propel his career. 
A decade ago, Dr. Ralph De La Torre was considered an ambitious, sometimes brash, healthcare leader who helped save the struggling Caritas Christi Health System. When he took the helm of Caritas in 2008, De La Torre promised a new model of care, especially for vulnerable patients. Here he is at a 2014 fundraiser explaining what he was offering patients. To make sure that we provide not just health care, but really good health care in their community. Not just where they can afford it, but where they can access it. And that's really what it's all about. That fundraiser was billed as a roast of Ralph, with prominent Massachusetts leaders joking about Delatory's ambition and strong personality. Then Massachusetts Blue Cross Blue Shield CEO Andrew Dreyfus joked that by 2024, Delatory would probably be in charge of much of the state's healthcare industry. I'd like to propose that we all toast Ralph Delatory, a visionary a leader, and soon, no doubt, my boss. (laughs) Philanthropist and advertising executive Jack Connors quipped that praise from Delatore was almost an accomplishment. If he were to pat you on the back, you were listed on your resume. (laughs) Connors is credited with helping put Delatore on the path to become a healthcare magnate. Connors introduced Delatore to those looking for the next Caritas leader. While running Caritas, Delatore made a deal with a private equity firm that created Stewart. The company is now the nation's largest physician-led hospital operator. Along the way, Connors says, Delatore changed. Ralph decided that his first priority was to make himself wealthy. I know I'm being recorded, by the way. Connors describes Delatory as brilliant and an innovator. He was proud that Delatory kept the Caritas hospitals running, but Connors is troubled by Delatory's reputation for ostentatious symbols of wealth, such as acquiring a $40 million yacht while running hospitals for vulnerable patients. I'm not opposed to people taking care of themselves, but he forgot to take care of the hospitals and the patients. Delatory's career started as a doctor. An alum of Harvard and MIT, his work as a cardiac surgeon was widely admired. Dr. Frank Selke, now at Brown University Medical School, worked with Delatory at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Selke says Delatory could be difficult. He's a very talented individual, very smart. I mean, he's a bit on the aggressive side, and, you know, he, he doesn't take any prisoners in uh, how he deals with things. And observers say Delatory skillfully navigated business and political spheres, once hosting then-President Barack Obama at his Newton home for a fundraiser. Dreyfus, the former Blue Cross Blue Shield executive, says Delatory was a tough negotiator who deserves credit for saving some hospitals. I worked with him fairly closely, and he always struck me as someone who was deeply committed to his organization, to the community. And I think now we just have to say, well, we still have these important community resources out there, these important hospitals, and how can we stabilize them? But some say Stewart's actions over the years haven't been compatible with community health care. They point to the company's partnership with private equity and the sale of its hospital real estate as examples of putting patients at risk. As for Jack Connors, he thinks he made a mistake by helping open doors for Delatory in Massachusetts. This is a place where people come from around the world to learn how to help other people. And that's what I thought Ralph wanted to do, and I was mistaken. I'm kind of sick about it. 
Connor says he's confident state officials will come up with a way to minimize the impact of Stewart's financial straits. The company declined to make Delatory available for an interview. Stewart has blamed its financial problems largely on low reimbursement rates for publicly insured patients. Last week, the company said it's arranged a financial deal that will keep its Massachusetts hospitals open for now while it considers a potential transfer of ownership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about a constitutional crisis happening in West Africa. Senegal's parliament has voted to delay elections after opposition lawmakers seeking to block the vote were thrown out of the National Assembly. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KF.org and the Museum of Science. With changing landscapes, an immersive journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe. MOS.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Voters head to the polls in Nevada today for the so-called first-in-the-West presidential primary. Republican lawmakers are casting doubt on the fate of an immigration deal ahead of a planned vote tomorrow. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East pushing for a ceasefire and hostage release in the Israel-Hamas war. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. One person in China who can move financial markets just with his schedule. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Stock indexes in China posted big jumps today after getting clobbered for about two years now. The Shanghai Composite Index closed up 3.2 percent, Hong Kong up 4 percent. This follows a string of announcements from Chinese regulators about efforts to stabilize the markets there. Plus, big one today, Bloomberg News is reporting that President Xi himself will speak to financial regulators about the state of the stock market. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack is in Shanghai. For the past four years, China's stock market has not been a place to put your money because there's a lot of uncertainty with U.S.-China tensions and the property slump. Meanwhile, China's economy has not fully recovered from the strict pandemic-era lockdowns. China's regulators say they will stabilize the market, 
but did not say how. Some observers say today's market bounce reflects Chinese government-backed investors buying up stocks, rather than a shift in investor sentiment. It doesn't help that China's government has been censoring experts who talk about the Chinese economy in less than glowing terms. Frustrated Chinese investors have used creative ways to vent about the stock market, including under a post about giraffes by the U.S. Embassy on its Chinese social media account. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. Markets here: S&P futures up a tenth percent, Nasdaq futures up two tenths percent. This morning, the car service Lyft unveiled a plan to guarantee drivers a share of their weekly efforts—a promise that drivers will get at least seventy percent of what customers pay. The company is also promising better transparency over how fares are divvied up. Marketplace's Nova Safo has that. Yeah, Lyft says a vast majority of its drivers already take home more than seventy percent of weekly fares, but this will make sure that the fifteen percent who don't will get a pay bump.、Uh, notably, that seventy percent share comes after the company deducts external fees, which it describes as things like local taxes and added insurance costs. So, really, the actual take-home pay could still be. Less than seventy percent of what passengers actually pay, but it's still a new higher floor for drivers. Lyft is also promising to offer drivers a weekly earnings summary that breaks down how much money is coming in and where it's going. David, so is this a tight labor market at work? Yes, Lyft is competing for labor, especially with its bigger rival Uber. Lyft's chief executive told Reuters that he hopes this change will attract more drivers, but also gig economy companies in general have been facing pressure to improve pay. New York City last year set the nation's first minimum wage for food delivery workers, and the Labor Department next month. We'll begin enforcing new rules that tighten who can be considered a gig worker, and the department has said that it will prioritize enforcement at companies where it thinks workers are being deprived fair wages. David Novosafo, thank you. Researchers at Alphabet Google today called for more government curbs on firms that make software to hack into your phone. Last year, 50 countries, including the U.S., had pledged to consider new rules. The Google people say they're most often finding private sector spyware. The stuff advertised as a tool for national security. Among companies in this space include NSO of Israel, Cyfor Gate and RCS Labs of Italy, Intellexa of Greece, and Veristen of Spain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by C3 Generative AI, verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Buyside from the Wall Street Journal. Buyside's reviews and recommendations help customers decide how to spend their time and money at wsj.com/buyside. This week we'll get quarterly results from two big beauty brands: the affordable Elf Beauty Cosmetics and a fancy one, St. Lauder, which started out the week by saying it is cutting more than 3,000 jobs, as much as 5% of its workforce. It's a time with many new competitors in the makeup and what they call beauty market. Here's Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval. If you're going to launch a beauty brand these days, you really have to bring it, says Eva Yen, founder of the consultancy Love Life Beauty. When there's so many, let's say, you know, gladiators already there,、um, why are you coming into the arena to to fight?、Uh, what do you have to offer that's different? 
It's an evolving business, influenced heavily by the ethos of Gen Z, says Ildiko Yuhas with the Fashion Institute of Technology. When young people dab on a fragrance... They want to express themselves. They want it to boost their mood. They don't necessarily are. They're not necessarily doing it to seduce somebody else. Gen Zers also don't necessarily want to buy beauty products in a store unless there's a hook. Is it an appearance from a, you know, a brand founder? You know, is it like a celebrity appearance? Is it like there's a sampling, you know, program happening? This round, it's Gen Z, but legacy brands have always had to keep redefining themselves to stay relevant, says Katie Thomas with the Kearney Consumer Institute. In a lot of ways, besides for a couple products, not not always an incredibly loyal category in that you're going to stay there for years and years and years. One way brands, new and old, may pitch themselves this year is by focusing on the science behind their products. So a lot of talk of, you know, peptides or perhaps at-home tools. And legacy brands who have invested big bucks in research and development may use that as a selling point, says Mintel analyst Lauren Goodsit. Bringing that to the forefront so that while consumers are out doing their research, trying to find the best products, the best brands, they'll see that proven efficacy and know that it is a brand that they can trust. And earning that trust also depends on having the right messenger, says Melissa Hibbert, founder of Shift Beauty Consulting Agency. Instead of relying on celebrity influencers who have paid thousands of dollars for plastic surgery, consumers want more authenticity. The jig is up. The veil has been pulled back and, you know, and brands know it now. They cannot they cannot keep moving in that direction. She says brands can build that trust by working with nano influencers who have niche audiences. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. After that layoff announcement yesterday, ST Lauder stock rose 12%. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. They fall to the upper 20s tonight and will have overcast skies. Tomorrow, partly sunny and near 40. Mostly sunny on Thursday and in the low 40s. Partly sunny on Friday and near 50. It's 30 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. More Gazans are growing angry with Hamas and the way it has handled the war, as civilians continue to pay an impossibly high price. Many think Hamas will survive the war, but be forced to change. People will obligate them to change because they will not accept to have another war, another catastrophe. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.